from not too long ago asked the question, is your life off, more off course than you think it is? Uh, the article talks about, uses uh, planes as an example, and I spoke to one of our, our in-house pilots to verify some of this yesterday. We had a good conversation yesterday, because you can't believe every article you read, right? Although this makes sense. Uh, this this uh, article, uh, those who did research, who looked into it, estimated that planes are off course 90% of the time. You hear that, you think, wow, that's, you know, I don't want to go, I don't want to fly anymore. I mean, you immediately think that when you really understand what it means, it's not that surprising. I mean, you know, wind, turbulence, things of that nature are constantly knocking planes just a little bit off course. So what has to happen is instruments, navigational systems, pilots, uh, air traffic control, pilots have to make minor course corrections throughout the flight. And uh, talking to Mike yesterday, he said, he, he described it this way, you know, you're going from point A to point B, we draw a straight line on a map, the flight's more like, you know, an S pattern, because you're constantly making corrections, and that's just part of it, right? I mean, that's just part of flying, and that, that makes sense. We can all wrap our minds around that. Uh, there's constant corrections, there are constant corrections that have to be made. Well, the same, what's true for flying is true for our lives, and is true for the church, I mean, life is full of all sorts of, all kinds of turbulence, right? There, there are all sorts of events, all sorts of things that happen outside of our control that knock us around a little bit. Uh, individuals, our families, the church. The question is, will we stay flexible and will we make the necessary corrections, the necessary course corrections as we go through life? Because if we don't, then we're going to end up in a bad place. Those minor corrections in and of themselves, you know, don't seem like that big of a deal. But for a plane, if you don't correct, make that correction, at the very least, you can end up way off course. At the very worst, you can end up with a disaster. As a matter of fact, in 1979, Air New Zealand Flight 901 experienced this firsthand. It was a sightseeing flight. Uh, this, this passenger jet took off. Uh, from New Zealand to Antarctica and to do some sightseeing. What the pilots didn't realize was that uh, the flight coordinates were off by two degrees, just two degrees. Well, they got to where they thought they were supposed to be. They were going to do some sightseeing, approached Antarctica. The pilots descended to give everybody on board a view. But what they didn't realize, they wanted to see the landscapes. They didn't realize that the incorrect coordinates had placed them in the direct path of a volcano, an active volcano, Mount Erebus. And alarms began to sound on the plane, landscape, horizon, but it was too late. Before they could change anything, they, the plane crashed. All 273 people on board were killed. Two degrees ends in disaster. Well, what about our lives? What about our church? What corrections need to be made that, while in the moment may seem small, could end in disaster for our lives, for ourselves, for our families, for our church? We've got to be flexible. Small things, if not corrected, become big things always. Small sin, when not confessed immediately, becomes big sin later on, always. When God leads, even if it's a small step, if we refuse to take that step, there are going to be big consequences later on, always. Will we make the corrections? Will we as a church? That's what this, these letters to the churches is all about. 
We see within these letters, Jesus, seven, Jesus' message to the church. That's our new series. We, we look at the, in these letters, we see Jesus giving course corrections. We see Jesus uh, praising them for the things that they're doing that they need to build on. There are instructions within these. These were real churches, literal churches that existed in, in John's day and time, but they also represent every church and every age. We will identify with these churches, probably all of these churches, in some way, shape, form, or fashion. These messages have significant meaning for us. And, and we're in this series to understand this message, these messages, so that we can be the church God wants us to be. The purpose of this series is this. We need to know who we are and what we are to do as the people of God. These letters give us those instructions. It, they will help us understand how to take the mission and the vision that we have talked about and implement that, the strategy that we want to implement, and it'll help us better do that and to do it in a way that honors God. Why isn't it important to know who we are and what we are to be? Well, if we don't know who we are, then we won't know, we don't know what to do. We'll try anything and everything to be effective, which will lead to all types of confusion. Jesus anticipates this. He knows that if we don't know have a purpose, we'll do whatever. We'll just fill up the calendar. We're good at that. We'll do whatever we can to look busy, to, to look like we're doing something significant. So in anticipation of this, he gives us these letters, and we find answers in these seven letters. Today, we're going to look at the first letter. Uh, in each of these letters, you're going to see uh, encouragement, you're going to see challenge, you're going to see warning, exhortation, and promise. But five, there are seven letters, five of the seven letters you see a rebuke. Five of these seven churches are in trouble, and Jesus rebukes them. And the first is Ephesus, and that's where we'll begin today. Now, if you look at Ephesus, it's one of the, the five greatest cities in the Roman Empire. It, it is a hugely influential city. It was a major commercial trade center. It was where three major routes converged. So it was a great place for commerce. It was a, it was a great place um, uh, to make money, to sell goods, to buy goods. Uh, people from all over converged on this place. Very powerful, very influential place. It was the center of Roman justice. It was given the honor by the Roman government of being declared a free city, which meant they were allowed to govern themselves. So this was, this was an important place. It was the center of Roman justice, merchant, I mean, all kinds of stuff, but it was also the center of a lot of sinful activity. It was the center of idolatry. There is a temple that was there that was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was the temple of the worship of Diana or Artemis. The temple was 25 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high. A huge temple, center of idolatry, had columns that were overlaid with gold. Ephesus was also, uh, it also had a, a highway that was 70 feet wide that ran from the harbor to the Grand Theater and lined with columns on both sides. I mean, a lot of development there in this city. There was a great theater of Ephesus, the, the great theater of Ephesus. It's seated between 25,000 and 50,000 people. Huge, massive theater. The remains of the theater you can still see today. Ephesus was an affluent and an influential city, to say the least. They were hugely important 
and, and the Roman Empire in that day and time. It was a cultural center and a, also a center of great immorality. And Jesus writes to this church, and all of this to these churches, he tells, he's saying, I know where you are. And he writes to this church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, and that's where we'll start today. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along with me. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also process or possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet you... You do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor, to the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. You know, Paul had established this church on his second missionary journey. When he returned uh, on his third missionary journey, he ended up staying there another two years. Um, he, he spent about three years total with the Ephesians, the church that, that he had started at Ephesus. It had a strong leadership, this church did. It wasn't like this was a weak church. It was a strong church, strong leadership, pastored by Paul, Apollos, even John himself. It had been effective in advancing the gospel. I mean, you think about this hub where all three of these major roads converge. What a, an incredible place. What incredible opportunities they had to share the gospel with people from all over. And they took advantage of those opportunities. They shared the gospel. They were faithful, had great location. It was a well-organized church with a global perspective and wanted to reach uh, the globe. They wanted to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, spread the gospel for the kingdom of God. They would send money throughout the world. They would help believers both at home and far away. They were generous. They had a global understanding when it came to missions. They were doing all of the right things and were built the right way to a certain point. Jesus himself said, you worked hard, you've persevered, you've resisted sin. Critically, uh, he, they've critically examined those people who claim to be apostles but were not and proved them wrong. They were so solid in their own doctrine, they would examine these guys, they would test these guys and prove that they were false apostles. I mean, they were solid, they were grounded in their faith. They knew the Lord, they knew his teachings, the apostles' teachings. They were doctrinally sound and they endured hardships. They, Jesus says, you've endured. So they had withstood persecution. I mean, they were, they were doing all all of these things right. They had done it. They had endured without becoming discouraged, but they had a problem. I mean, this church, they were transformed. They weren't just making their, they, they, they weren't just making a difference. They were making their world different, okay? I mean, they were doing things right, a lot of things right, but one glaring thing was a problem in their church. They needed to make a course correction, and it wasn't just a minor one. This was a huge problem. And what does Jesus say? 
that their problem was. The church at, at, at Ephesus had forsaken their first love. Folks, they were doing all these things. Initially, they were doing them the right way for the right reasons. But you get the idea that it just became routine. It just became maybe a competition to see who could follow the most rules or know the most. It became ritualistic, maybe even legalistic. They had fallen out of love with Jesus, and that was a big problem. Jesus says, you've forsaken your first love. There was a point at time. Here's what Jesus is saying. There was a point in time in which you walked away. Jesus didn't move. They did. There was a point in time where you walked away. They had lost sight of the very reason they were together in the first place, the very reason they were doing the things that Jesus commended them for at the beginning of this letter. They had made this mistake, and and this morning we're going to look at some actions that we need to take as a church in order to avoid making that mistake of forsaking our first love. The first is this. We need to be founded on the love of Christ. Be founded on the love of Christ. The foundation of the church is the love of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 38, what this means is that we love Jesus because he loves us. Familiar verse. He said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. So if we're going to be founded on the love of Christ, that means we've experienced his love, and now we love him with everything that we are and everything that we have. Love. He has to be the center of our lives, and we have to love him as we should. Love is relational. You know, the the Ephesians' problem was a relational problem. I mean, they're believers. They had done all the right things, mostly. They had done a lot of great things. They had a global perspective. They were missions-minded. They were doing things. uh, They were doctrinally sound, but their relationship with Jesus was not right. And you can be a follower of Christ, and your relationship with Christ not be where it needs to be. How many of you have ever been there? I've been there before, right? We've, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can look back and see when your relationship was strong and when it wasn't. And usually, always, it was because you, there was either sin in your life or you walked away, right? Doesn't mean you weren't saved. It's just you, went, you made a choice. You went down a path, and you had not yet made that course correction. So you were off course. And that's what Jesus is saying. You guys have walked away. You've forsaken your first love. It was a relational problem. They had work without worship. They had duty, but no devotion. They had labor, but they had no love behind it. Jesus isn't talking to the the people in this city that would go down and worship idols once a week at the temple. That's not who he's talking to. These people aren't openly living pagan lives. They're not worshiping idols. They're not going to the temple of Artemis. They're not, they're not doing these pagan things. He's not talking to the people who are using and abusing people and unfair business practices, which took place rampantly in the city of Ephesus. He's not talking to those people who aren't claiming Christ at all. He's not talking to people who are living open, sinful lives. He's not talking to people who don't understand doctrine, who aren't doctrinally sound or doctrinally pure, who don't understand worship. He's not talking about those false apostles claiming to be apostles. That's not who he's talking about here. These aren't the people he's talking about, people who didn't understand the worship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to the church, a good church with a great reputation who had done a lot of great things but had gotten off track, who had fallen out of love with Jesus. They were doing all these things, good things, commendable things, but they had forsaken their first love. 
a, a track, an incredible track record of ministry effectiveness. If we were to look at this church on the outside, we would say, man, that church is blowing and going. Boy, they're reaching people. They're doing all kinds of stuff. They're being effective. They're sending people all around the world. But Jesus says when he looks at their hearts, they don't truly love him. He's not the center. He's not first. There's a relational problem. Their relationship with Jesus is off track. How could that happen? How could a church that does so many things well, so many things that advance the kingdom of God, Jesus himself says this, how could that church fall out of love with Jesus? How can it happen? Well, how does it happen in churches today? It happens all over the place. Churches that seem good on the outside... Hey, it happens to believers. Maybe you're in that position today. You're doing all the right things. You're attending church. You're telling people about Jesus. You're following the rules. You're reading the Bible every day. You're praying every day. You're going through the motions. You're doing all the right things. It appears, but in your heart, you know something's not right. You've allowed something in your life to take the place in your life that belongs to Jesus. Something on the throne of your life that is his throne. It's easy to do. We get distracted. We get sidetracked. We allow sin to creep in, and before we know it, that's what consumes us. And we're still going through the motions. We're still doing all the right things. It happens individually. It happens in churches all the time. Looks good on the outside, but on the inside, there's a problem. We lose our first love. Maybe, maybe for the Ephesians, I, I don't know exactly what, what's going on, but maybe for them, you know, one of the reasons was that judgment took priority over, over Jesus. I mean, they were doctrinally sound. They're testing these false apostles. Maybe they got arrogant in it. Maybe they got legalistic in it. Maybe it was, it was about what, so much about rules that rules took pre- precedent over relationship. I don't know. Maybe ministry for Jesus took, place, took the place of ministry by Jesus. Maybe they began to do all this stuff for the Lord instead of being led by the Lord and allowing him to work through them. I don't know, maybe something comes along in our lives that looks better than the way of Christ. More money, different job, a position, position in life, other attractive things. Maybe something like that comes along and, and, and we become consumed with it to the point that, that those things replace our love for Jesus. It's easy to do. You don't start out with the intent of doing that, but before you know it, that's where you are. We have to love Jesus, and this involves loving him with everything that we are and everything that we have, but the second command is just as great. It's like it, Jesus says, we have to love others the way that Jesus did too. It involves our love for the church. Other members of the family of God, we need to love each other because if we love Jesus, we're going to love what he loves, and you better believe he loves his bride. We need to love each other. Again, the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two things. Love God, love each other. Love God, love people. Our love doesn't stop with believers, though. We need to love people outside the church. You know, maybe the Ephesians, they, they like to reach people. They like bigger numbers, but they truly didn't love those people who didn't look like Christians and act like Christians. Maybe that happened. I don't know. That happens in churches. You know, we want to reach them as long as they behave like we do. Well, we have to disciple them. They need to grow in their faith. Do we truly love the unlovable? Are we willing to reach the unreachable? To care about those who nobody else cares about? Do we love others? Do we love people outside the church? 
In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Fake it till you make it. (laughs) As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. There's some truth to that. Fake it till you make it. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Have you ever prayed for somebody you didn't like, hated even, and then before you knew it, you found yourself caring about them? You almost get mad at yourself for it, right? You still want to hate them. But you pray for them, and you pray for them, and you pray for them, and suddenly you realize, oh, I kind of care about this person. I'm concerned about their eternal destiny. I'm concerned about their relationship with the Lord. I'm concerned about their relationship with other people. That's, that's, that's what we've got to do. I mean, you, you, we've got to be willing to love others. If we're going to be the church that is centered on the love of Christ, that is founded on the love of Christ, we've got to love him first with everything that we are, everything that we have. We've got to love each other in the church, but then we've got to love others, even those that we don't like, politicians on the other side of the aisle that we're from, presidents that we may or may not agree with. Pray for that man. Leadership in our community and beyond pray for those people. Love them. Don't have to agree with them. Pray that that the Lord Jesus will make them what he wants them to be and that they will be open to that. We've got to be characterized by love. This is what it means to be founded on the love of Jesus Christ. Second, we need to be faithful in our love for Christ. It's easy to say, I love Jesus. You know, wear the t-shirt, whatever. But do we really live that way? Are we faithful in our love? Or does, when the going gets tough, do we get going? I mean, because life is difficult. And, and, and the church is going to be increasingly persecuted, I believe. I think we're seeing the beginning signs of that. And so we're, our faith, our love is really going to be put to the test. The future of the church depends on steadfast, steadfastness, faithfulness. That was the problem that the Ephesians had. I, I believe one of their problems was they, they, were, they had had a great start and a great reputation, but they were starting to tire down the backstretch. They, they, were, they were fading. They weren't remaining faithful, steadfast. It was because their passion for Christ had faded. And if we want to stay steadfast, we've got to stay in the Word. We've got to stay in fellowship with Jesus. Our love for Him has to stay strong. You know, some, something else that may interfere with our love for Christ uh, is it could be busyness. It could be, it, it could, maybe it's not persecution, and it could be just we're just allowing too many things into our lives. Our lives are becoming cluttered with too many things, and we're so busy we don't have time for Jesus anymore. You know, church isn't a priority anymore. My relationship, my, my quiet time with God has been choked out by too many other things. You know, getting the kids ready for school, getting off to work or whatever. I'm not making time for Christ. I've just become too busy. There's too many things that, that are competing for time that belongs to him and devotion that belongs time for him. We're not being transformed daily because we're not making time to be transformed. We're not giving God time to work in our lives. Transformation takes time. And it takes a willingness to allow God to work in his time, in his way. But are we making time for that? Maybe not. Maybe we're just too too busy. Maybe we make excuses for sin that exists in our lives instead of confessing and repenting. We've allowed some things in that we don't think are too bad. 
But slowly but surely, they've grown to become huge distractions, and they've become idols, or they've just become barriers between us and God. Sin that exists, that we know it's there, but we're not willing to confess because we just don't want to let go of it. We're too comfortable with it. It doesn't matter whether we think it's a big deal or a small deal. If it's coming between us and God, then it's a problem. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's something you don't even know about, and you need to get on your knees and pray, God, reveal it to me. Show me where I've fallen short. But then we have to be willing to confess and to turn from that sin and turn back to God. Maybe it's something like that. We ignore something that God wants us to do or, or some area we need to confess. Maybe it's something he's calling us to do that we're not willing to do. We're living in disobedience, and that's the sin. He's telling us to step out. I don't know. There are two things that we need to realize here, though, about commitment. We're talking about being committed, faithful. Commitment involves sacrifice. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. God, you will not reject a heart that is broken and sorry for sin. So how much, how much do I love Jesus? What am I willing to let go of? Let me ask it another way. What is it that you're holding on to that he wants you to let go of? What is it that you're trying to control? You, you say, what's a broken heart? Well, a whole heart in this context gives the idea of self-sufficiency right? I've got it all together. I can control this. I can handle this. God, I'll let you have this. I'll do the church thing on Sunday, the Jesus thing on Sunday, but my family, my job, my finances, I got this. Holding on to it, a broken heart says, I know I don't got this. Lord, I need your help. It is yours. My life is yours. You are in control. You call the shots. You tell me where to go, and I'll go. Even if I don't understand it, I'm going to follow you one day at a time, one step at a time, your way. I'm a sinful man, and without you, I would be nothing. Lord, my life is yours. Take it as worthless as it is and use it for your glory. That's brokenness. That's what God wants. And maybe that's our problem. Maybe we are not willing to sacrifice. Maybe we're not willing to let go of control of our lives or some sin or some habit or something that exists. And God's saying, you will never truly have right relationship with me until you let go. We got to let go. Maybe that's it. Commitment involves sacrifice. You know, even if you are not a believer, let me let you in on a little secret. Control is an illusion. You know, we think we've got control. We never truly have control, right? We think we got it all together, and all it takes is one virus <laughs> to show us we don't have a clue. You know, one car accident, one, one sickness, one, one lost job, or one problem that we didn't see coming to make us realize we really don't have a clue. We may think we're in control, but we're not. Best to, to, to willfully turn your life over to the one who has complete control, the one who created and sustains it all. We need to give our lives to him. Control or commitment involves sacrifice. Commitment also involves diligence. So we, we come to him, we give our lives to him, but we've got to stay faithful in that. Look at 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul tells Timothy this. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Be diligent. Do not give up. Steadfast, faithful. If you've gotten to the point where you think you've arrived, you're not there yet. It, that's the most dangerous place they believe in. Maybe that's the problem that the Ephesians have. Maybe they think, hey, we're so good at testing these apostles. There's nothing else anybody can teach us. We know it all. We have arrived spiritually. 
And God's going, no, you're, you're, you're nowhere near where you need to be. As long as there's breath in my body, there's more growing I need to do. As long as I'm alive, I have a feeling as long as eternity exists, there will be things about God that will marvel us. And we'll be perfect in heaven, but God's, God's who he is, his majesty, his glory, his power, the depths of his character are beyond human comprehension. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord, which, which translates into, I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning about those ways and thoughts. Uh, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it, which means he's not done yet. He will be, but he's not done yet. I need to continue to grow, to know and grow uh, Jesus Christ, to grow in my grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. John Wesley said this, we've got to be diligent. Give me a hundred men who hate nothing but sin and love God with all their hearts and I will shake the world for Jesus Christ. Commitment, total, 100%, sold out, diligent, steadfast, not giving up in the face of persecution or pain or suffering or anything, total commitment. That's what God deserves and that's what he expects. We must love God with an undying devotion and we show this by our diligence and service for him faithfulness to him. We have to do this if we're going to maintain our love for Christ. If we're going to be founded on the love, if the foundation of this church is the love of Jesus Christ, we have to love him and remain faithful in that love. Number three, we need to remain focused through the love of Jesus Christ, through our love for Christ. Remain focused. Churches need focus. We've got to remain focused because here's the truth. A church without focus is a church without purpose. We must be a church that's driven by biblical purposes. We've talked for weeks now about vision and purpose, but I, wanna, I just want to really quickly go over five biblical purposes that our vision, our mission, our strategy are based on. They're biblical. It's how God designed his church. Five purposes. One is worship. Worship is what we do here on Sunday morning. But worship is also what we do every day as we live our lives. Our lives are to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice of worship to God. Love the Lord your God. That's the greatest commandment. How do I show my love for God? I live my life for him. My life is his, and everything I do, I do because I love him for his glory, because he deserves it. Ministry, love your neighbor, the second greatest commandment. How do I love my neighbor? Yes, I have warm fuzzies maybe, I have affection for them, but I show my love through service, through ministering to those people around me. Evangelism. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples. We as a church, as individuals, need to be sharing the gospel in word, but also in acts of love through ministry. Um, we, we use that to open a door to share while we're doing it because we love Jesus. You know, but this is an everyday thing, right? Go and make disciples really should be understood as you're going, while you're going every day, make disciples. That should just be a part of who we are. And then there's fellowship, baptizing them into the fellowship of believers. Matthew 28 goes on to tell us. I mean, we are, we are a fellowship of believers, and one of the purposes of the church is that we have fellowship, iron sharpening iron, encouraging one another. Hebrews 10.25 tells us we should not stop gathering together 
with other believers, as some of you are doing. Instead, we must continue to encourage each other even more as we see the day of the Lord coming. Hebrews 10, that chapter is about encouraging each other, building each other up, and doing whatever is necessary, which includes being together, but it also includes discipleship, and just the whole iron sharpening iron. That all comes through fellowship. We've got to have relationship with God and with each other because we are weak on our own. We are strong together. And so we need to encourage one another. Discipleship is part of the church, purpose of the church. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to obey. We build relationships with the lost to share the gospel so that we can win them to Christ and then we leave them on their own forever, right? No, that's not God's design. We build a relationship with the lost, we lead them to Christ, and that relationship grows from there. We invest in them just as Jesus invested in his disciples. They invested in others. We repeat that pattern over and over again. We disciple relationships, discipleship. And here's why we're reviewing these things. All five of these purposes center on the love of Jesus Christ. The reason we do them because he loved us. We are disciples because he loved us. And now we do this because of our love for him. We've experienced his love. Now we want others to experience his love. It all centers on the love of Jesus Christ. And a church without focus is a church without purpose. Guess what? If you have no purpose, you have no future. A church without focus is a church without purpose. And a church without purpose is a church without a future. If we want a future, see, this church, Ephesus, is in danger of losing their future. Many, many churches have died because of the mistake that the church at Ephesus had made. They've lost sight of their purpose. They've lost sight of why they, were, why they existed in the first place. And they're in danger of dying as a church. If they're not careful, they will lose their future. Not their eternity. I'm not talking about losing salvation. I'm talking about the church. Churches come and go. Jesus is forever. Eternal life is just that. It's eternal. But churches have died before, and that's what they're in danger of. They are in danger of losing their future. In Revelation 2, 5, Jesus says, If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. Let me translate that into 21st century English. You will die. This church will cease to exist. That's what Jesus is saying here. If they do not repent... There is no hope for that local body of believers, for that church. There's an interesting story about the Taj Mahal. Incredible, incredible, beautiful structure. It's one of the most beautiful and costly tombs ever built. It's an incredible thing, fascinating. And there's something fascinating about its beginnings. In 1629, the favorite wife of Indian ruler Shah Jahan died. So he ordered this magnificent tomb to be built for her. He loved her so much, he wanted to build this incredible structure to pay honor to her. So he placed his wife's casket in the middle of where it was going to be built, and construction began. And, and it, it took several years. I mean, it, it just became this incredible project. And it went on and on and on and on and on. Well, somewhere in the middle of the project, one day, while the king, the ruler, the Indian ruler, rather, was surveying the construction site, he tripped over a wooden box. And he ordered his men to get it out of the way before somebody hurt themselves. So they took the box and they threw it away. It wasn't until later that they figured out that that was, in fact, his wife's casket. So the purpose for the structure was lost 
and a passion for the structure. They got so busy building the building, building the structure, that they forgot why they were doing it in the first place. Now listen, you know, we can do great things here in this church. I'm excited about our renovation. I'm excited about all the things that we're doing ministry-wise, missions-wise. I'm excited about the future of this church. But if we're not careful, if we lose sight of why we're doing it in the first place, we might as well not even be doing it. That's what happened to the church at Ephesus. They had lost sight of why they were doing it. They were doing good things, but they were just going through the motions. They had lost sight of their first love. We have to be careful not to forget why we're here in the first place. Folks, the only reason we're here in the first place is because of the the gracious love of Jesus Christ. We are here because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. No other reason. He loved us. He didn't have to do it. He could have left us in sin to rot in our sin and been justified in doing that. Yet because he loves us, he makes a way for us to have a relationship with him. We don't ever need to forget that. We have to stay focused on that if we're going to maintain his love in our church. And then we also need to be fruitful in our love for Christ. Fruitful. Jesus warns the church of Ephesus in verse 5. Let's look at that verse again. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's not, here's the thing about God. He is so gracious. He is so merciful. He is so loving. He doesn't just walk away immediately. He never leaves. He's always constant, but he doesn't give up on us immediately. He doesn't just say, oh, you messed up. I'm done with you. No, he comes graciously at first. He gives a warning. You're, you're headed down the wrong way. Holy Spirit brings you under conviction. You're making a bad choice. It's going to lead to even, even worse choices, worse consequences. And he, he tugs at us and he calls on us. But then we continue in our rebellion and his conviction gets a little stronger. Hey, if you keep going, it's going to be bad. You need to turn back now. I'm here waiting, open arms, but you've got to turn back. You've got to turn away from that sin. You've got to turn back to me. And he keeps going, and he keeps, he'll never give up on us. And as a matter of fact, and he'll let us go to the point to where we experience the worst possible consequences in this life. And that's what he's doing with this church. He's not just saying, I'm giving up on you guys. Y'all made a mistake. You're on your own. He's saying, no, you guys, I love you. You are my church. You are making bad choices. You have lost your first love. I will accept you back if you turn right now. But if you don't, if you don't this church is going to die clear warning, clear message to that church. That's what he's saying to them. He's not just abandoning them. He's giving them more grace than any grace is more than any of us deserve, but he's giving them grace. He's calling them back, but they needed to do some things. And, and we, if we have, if any of us, if any of us have, have, have made bad choices, if we know we're headed down the wrong road, there's some things we need to do. The first thing we need to remember, John shows us some things that need to happen. Jesus tells us through him some things that need to happen. First, we need to remember, we need to remember what the passion was like when we first began to walk with Christ. They needed to regain their passion for Jesus. You remember what it was like when you were first saved? You were so excited. You were so in love with Christ. You wanted to tell everybody it consumed your life, right? Everything was about that. He's saying, you need to get back to that. That same passion. It's died out. You need to regain that passion for Jesus Christ. What it felt like when you knew your sins had been forgiven. When you really, that was fresh on your mind what you had been, been rescued from. 
We need to regain that passion. They needed to remember. Second, we need to repent. If we're in the same boat as the Ephesians, we need to repent. And repentance begins with brokenness. Brokenness over sin. Broken spirit, contrite heart. What does that mean? Again, a whole heart implies self-sufficiency, self-centeredness, egotism. It's all about me, fulfilling my needs. But a broken heart, someone with a broken heart sacrifices his ego in order to put others above himself. It's not about me or what I can accomplish for the kingdom of God. It's about Jesus first and in the center and then others above myself. It's putting others above myself. This will lead to recognizing the guilt of my sin. I will be humble before the feet of Jesus, and I will be more open to receive conviction and to respond to it. So I need to to repent, which involves brokenness, and then it involves recognition. I need to recognize what's wrong. You know, I can know something's wrong and not know what it is. And sometimes I need to go to the feet of Jesus and say, Show me, Lord, I know something's wrong. I may just be oblivious to it. Lord, show me. But I've got to have a broken heart first, humble at his feet, and then I recognize. And then repentance calls for redirection. You turn from that sin and you turn back to Jesus. The beautiful part is he's waiting there to receive you. Maybe you're here today or watching and you've never done that. And you know right now, just like all of us, you sin, you've fallen short of God's glory, and Jesus is calling you out of sin into a relationship with him. You've got to recognize your sin, agree with God that you have sin. By the way, you're in good company. We've all done it. All right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made mistakes, but Jesus is offering you freedom from that sin, but he will not force it on you. You have to turn. You have to make a decision. I'm turning away from that sin. I'm turning to God, and I'm receiving the free gift of eternal life. That's what repentance is. It's an about face. It's turning away from sin, turning to God, and receiving eternal life. As a believer, when I'm in sin, I don't lose my salvation, but if my relationship with God is going to be right, I have to turn from that sin, forsaking that sin, and turn back to my first love. Return to him, receiving forgiveness and restoration. That's what this church needed to do. And maybe, maybe that describes you here today. You need to turn back to Jesus. You've lost your first love. We have to read, there has to be a redirection. Then we need to respond. We need to repent. We need to respond. Remember, repent, and respond. Do the things you did at first, he says. You know, they're still busy. They're still doing things. So he's got to be talking about their motivation, right? It's not so much the things, but how they're doing it and why they're doing it. Do the things that you did at first. He's saying, I want you to love me like you used to love me. You don't love me like you used to love me. That's what Jesus is saying. I want you to seek my presence desperately. I want you to worship me like you once did with the full attention of your mind, the full affection of your hearts, with your life, with everything. I want you to orient your life around me and believe that my plan is best, so much so that you'll do anything to obey me. That's what he's saying. If our hearts are broken and our attitude is focused, then we will be open to God's conviction. Our focus will be on Jesus And something interesting will happen. We'll fall in love with him all over again. And then our love will be contagious. It will spread like wildfire. Because people will see what we have and they will want what we have. The greatest evangelistic tool you have is your life. Your testimony. The way you, what God has rescued you from, but the way that you live each day. 
People will see that. Evangelism will be the natural result. If Jesus is the center of our lives, if we are passionately in love with him that results in obedience and service, evangelism will flow from that. The gospel will be spread because we will be obedient in spreading it. The challenge is great. The commitment is greater. However, the God who calls us to step up to this challenge is the greatest, and he's faithful. So will we commit to becoming that type of church? He who began a good work will be faithful. None of us are where we need to be, but we can be well on our way. We can reach our full potential in Christ, individually and as a church. Now, let me illustrate that for you. I brought a couple of things with me. First, I've got some paintbrushes that belong to Anna Shirley over here. These are her paintbrushes. Do you know that in my hands, these paintbrushes are worth whatever less than what they cost because you pay more than they're worth. I'm not an artist. I could probably learn to paint, but I don't have the natural ability to draw. I just don't have that skill. And so for me, you know, I, I, I can make some squiggly lines, color some things in. It, it probably would look like a disaster. But you put these brushes into the hands of Picasso, and you're talking about a masterpiece, right? I mean, an artist who's skilled, who's talented, who's trained, who's learned, who has natural ability. You know, some people, I believe God just, you know, just blesses them with an extra dose of whatever. And I've seen artists that way who can paint pictures, you know, that just make you stand back and knowing nothing about art still be in awe. You put these brushes in the right hand, they'll reach their potential. In my hands, they're not gonna, that's not going to happen. I haven't done what's necessary. A ruler, a pencil. You know, in my hands, I, you know, I can build a few things. I can, about the only way I can draw a straight line is with a ruler. Maybe an etch-a-sketch, I can do that, you know. I, I'm just not a good artist, and I'm not, you know, I'm not an architect. I, I can, I'm, I, I guess I'm sort of a jack-of-all-trades, um, master of none. But, uh, you know, I, in my hands, it's limited. I'm not trained. I'm not a trained carpenter. I'm not an architect, I, you know. But you put these in the right hands, and, man, you can build something, right? Now it's all computerized, but, I, you know, a computer wouldn't serve the same purpose in an illustration, so you get a ruler. But you put this in the hands of an architect, man, he can build a building, design a building, a, a magnificent structure. But he's got the skill, and he's got the training. So in the right hands, these reach their full potential. In my hands, it's just not going to do it. Take a camera, for instance. In my hands, I might take a good picture, Usually I end up cutting people's heads off and, you know, I, too wide or too narrow. I've never been a good picture taker, and I don't like getting my picture taken. So in my hands, you might get a good picture every now and then, but you take this and put it in the right person's, a photographer's hands, and you can get something that's amazing. Again, knowing little about art, you can marvel at it, at just the choice to take that picture, the right setting on the camera. Uh, the, right, the right lighting naturally outside or inside. Someone who really knows what they're doing, who's got talent, who's been trained. You put this camera in their hands and it will reach its full potential. In my hands, it's going to be limited. But the same is true with my life and the life of this church. In my hands, in your hands, it will be limited. We might do some good things. The Ephesians were doing some good things. We might do some things that would bring us notoriety. We might do some things that, 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 that might help some people, some great things in terms of human greatness, but we'll never be all that God wants us to be. 
unless we fully put ourselves in his hands. We will never reach our potential as a church unless we completely belong to him, unless we are 100% totally submitted and sold out to him. And that begins with recognizing my need for him. If you don't know Christ, he's inviting you into this family today. If you do know Christ and you are, if something in your life is not right, your relationship with him is not right, he's inviting you back into right relationship with him today. He will not force himself on you, but he will receive you with open arms. The question is, will you make the choice to fall in love with him for the first time or fall in love with him all over again? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words in this book, this letter. While we may not be able to identify completely with each letter, there are things that we can identify with. And, And even if our relationship with you is healthy right now, there's always room to grow. Lord, there's always a step we can take to further and deepen our relationship with you. And I pray that we would do that today all of us, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to evaluate where we are in our relationship with you and what needs to change. How can we grow? Maybe there is a glaring sin that's that's standing in the way of our growing and becoming what you want us to be. Maybe we've lost our passion for you, our love for you, Other things have choked that out. Maybe it's about priorities. Maybe it's about sin. Maybe it's just about uh, humility and submission, our desire to control our own destiny. Lord, I pray that we would recognize the need, recognize what you want us to do, and we would respond in obedience. Maybe for some of us here today, it's recognizing that need for the first time, that there are some people who who haven't accepted salvation and and they're not in love with you because they don't know you personally as Lord and Savior. And I pray that as we spend these few moments in prayer, Lord, that they would just simply cry out to you where they are, recognizing that like all of us, they've sinned, they've made mistakes, fallen short of your glory. The wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin is separation from you for all of eternity. But thankfully, the free gift that you give is eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, you died on the cross, a horrible, agonizing death to pay the price for our sins. And for those who don't know you, if they will accept the gift of salvation, if they will believe in you and that you died for their sins and accept salvation through you, they can be saved. Lord, we want to be a church that's characterized, that's founded on your love. You so love the world that you gave yourself. As a result, Lord, I pray that we would give all of ourselves to you and to what you ask us to do, that we would love you passionately, desperately, diligently serving you, enduring, steadfast, not giving up, each day, one day at a time, submitting to you and following you day by day, step by step, even when the future is uncertain. Lord, may we remain faithful. May we never give up. Strengthened by you, your power, your presence in our lives, your word as it transforms us from the inside out. God, we want to be who you've called us to be, a church that is alive and vibrant and and fulfilling the purpose that you've given us. May we never lose sight of our first love. May we never lose our passion for you. And may that, be, that passion be evident in everything that we are and everything that we do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us first so that we now can love you. 
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.